Welcome to Managing Marketing. Today I'm sitting down with John Bradshaw, who is the founder, I guess, the CEO, the chairman, and uh, everything else at Brand Traction. Um, John, welcome. Hello, welcome. Hello. Hi, Darren. Um, look, John, one of the things that I've always uh, admired about you is one, you've got a quite a varied career. You've worked in telco, you've worked in packaged goods, uh, beverages. Uh, but as a marketer, you're incredibly passionate about strategy, innovation, and creativity. Um, what what was it in your career that really got you focused, or did, were you attracted to marketing because you always had a passion for those things? Oh, there's an Ouroboros of a thought, if ever there was one. Um, I, I think it's all of those things. I think I've got a natural bent to think about bigger puzzles from a bigger picture, longer term perspective. I think I'm more strategic than tactical in my DNA. Um, I was definitely attracted out of the sales function where I started my career and into the marketing function because I saw marketing as having a bigger impact on the business over a bigger horizon and, uh, and a bigger toolkit to play with. Um, but also I was really lucky relatively early in my career to be really well taught by some great coaches about what business strategic thinking is and how to conduct it. Mm. So I've got a orientation, a career choice, and the privilege of being taught and educated how to do it properly. But you think it was almost like a, a calling to a vocation because you already had those sort of ways of thinking, that strategic or big picture thinking. Yes, I'm naturally built to think about things that way, mm. to think about the destination and the end point and the bigger picture of how we might get there and not what should we do next and is the thing I'm currently executing working. I'm, I'm built that way. But the other thing I really appreciate about the way you talk and think and act is your almost passionate uh, desire and, and, and championing of creativity, not just in creative advertising, but creative thinking as well. I mean, you've always been the sort of marketer that is very focused on uh, inspiring the agencies and the people you work with to push the boundaries, aren't you? That's because I think there's a myth about strategy, that it's all numbers and analysis and mathematics. And don't get me wrong, I think there's an absence of numbers and analysis and mathematics in marketing at the moment, and we should be doing more. But again, I was taught very early on by one of my mentors that he who thinks they have the right answer is the person who is wrong. Yeah. Yeah, that there are no right answers, that there are a bunch of options in a pool of rightness, and your job is to strategically analyze and understand where the pool of rightness is and then make bold choices. And when we get to the bold choice making bit, then we need to leverage the creativity muscle. And especially when we get to the bit of marketing that's about advertising. 
It's a long way down the track from the mm. stuff we were originally talking about. But advertising's interesting and important. Um, what we do know is unless it's creatively disruptive, it's wallpaper. Mm. And if there's anything that advertising should never be, is it's like boring wallpaper that nobody's got any chance of paying attention to. They don't want to watch it in the first place. They're trying to avoid it and get around it or at least go make a cup of tea while it's on. So as soon as you start to make the thing in and as of itself dull, if you don't exercise the creative muscle when we get to the advertising bit, there's no hope in hell of persuading anybody's behavior to change. I think um, your, your uh, approach to advertising is, is often the most visible uh, expression of creativity. But in actual fact, when you talk about, uh, you, you know, you said further, maybe up yeah. in the process, there is still an element of creativity because that's the other part. You know? There is definitely numbers and analysis okay. as part of strategy, but there it's wrong to think that strategy is devoid of creativity. If anything, Absolutely. it is the most creative. But if we can define creativity, and I hate to do this, and I don't like defining creativity as a terrible thing, but if we can define creativity as the ability to see patterns. Yeah, and, and, to, and especially new patterns new that patterns. other people haven't seen. Yeah, so whether that's in storytelling and advertising or whether that's in kind of analysis yeah. and strategy. Well, new product development uh, or what, you know, new markets, whatever. That type of creativity, the new pattern spotting and the ability to kind of stick things together in unusual ways and be able to imagine what would happen if we did that, that's the core of the strategic thinking process. Otherwise, any monkey with an Excel spreadsheet could do strategy. Mm. Yeah. Um, or AI could do strategy. Yeah. Because, you know, one of the things that I like is even those working in artificial intelligence say that creativity is still a uh, domain of the human being because AI always learns from what it knows but doesn't necessarily make those quantum leaps. And it is one of those stupid problems we've got as a marketing industry where because there are people at one end of the spectrum whose job is called creative something, creative mm. director, um, that we think that's what creativity in marketing is. Whereas for most client marketers, like where we want them to be creative is in the innovation process, the strategy setting process, the, you know, the activity choosing like process. Mm. Um, and should be celebrated in all of its forms and not just its art copy and you know software building forms. Yeah, it is funny, isn't it? Because as soon as you put a label on a group of people that they're creative people, even within agencies, does that mean everyone else is not creative? Absolutely not. And it's interesting, I've been rolling out a whole bunch of training with a major client recently around innovation, like how to do consumer-driven innovation in a way that helps you invent things that people actually want rather than things that the manufacturing team can make. Yeah. And one of the groups of people we've been talking to is... So, sorry, say that again. Inventing things that consumers actually need and want rather than things that manufacturing can make. Oh my God, you mean mm. actually rather than factory out, customer in? <laughs> Desirability-led, feasibility yeah. and viability second. Right. Yeah. Let's make sure we get the desirability bit of innovation yes. right. Have I got something people would really like in their life? And then let's solve the problems of can we make it and can I make money out of it? 
But as soon as we bring the can I make it and can I make money out of it questions in too early in the process, the poor old consumer gets shoved out in the realm of practicality and commerciality. Don't get me wrong, those questions are absolutely critical before you launch something. Yeah, they, they have to be <laughs> answered at the right point. It's a bit like uh, De Bono's uh, uh, six hats, seven hats, what? Yeah, that you have to have that stage. Just don't bring it too early because okay. it will kill creativity. Anyway, so yeah, we've been rolling out this training a bunch of bunch a bunch of people and clients, and one of the groups of people we've had is the technologists, mm -hmm. the scientists, the designers, the you know the people who understand the technical aspects of this complex set of products, they have been the most creative and welcoming of a consumer-led process out of everybody. Like, once you give those types of people that you would consider to be the analysts and the scientists and the logical, rational thinkers of the organization, as soon as we give them some tools, they're off on a creative journey that's as inspiring as anything I've seen an ECD do. Mm. We're all creative at some level. There's very few of us don't have a well, it's creative the, aspect to it's, our being. It's part of the human condition. Yeah, and I think that people that say they're not creative, it's because at some point in their life they've been told that. They've been judged as not being creative and so they've suppressed that as an expression of who they are. But, you know, it's interesting that you should say that because um, there's a book, uh, Technique for Producing Ideas, which was written by James Webb Young, who worked at J. Walter Thompson back in the 40s and 50s. And he actually maps out the creative process in a book. It's only 50 pages and, and quite relatively small. But the first part of it, in fact, I'd say the first two-thirds of it, is absolutely diving into the problem or diving into the information and doing all of that analysis. Because he says creativity only occurs in the brain, in the subconscious, once you've filled it up to the brim with everything you could possibly know about the problem. And then you give it time to actually you know, germinate or ferment or whatever, you know, technique that you want to uh, use as a metaphor, and then ideas start popping out. But, see, I think you touch on one of the things that ails us as a community really nicely, Darren, which is that this notion that process and framework are anathema to creativity, whereas my opinion is they're the absolute critical partner. If we're talking about business creativity, mm. right? sure, if you want to go and make art, I don't know anything about making art, but potentially you can do that in a slightly less frameworked and process-led kind of way. But we're not making art. We're making advertising if we're talking about that bit, or we're making strategy if we're talking further up the stream. And that's a creative process that sits within a, that sits within a framework. Yeah. And the two are not incongruent and inconsistent. And yet I hear that a lot. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. Your process is killing my creativity, man. And it's like, well, that can't possibly be right because both of these things have to coexist. Or we get creativity not connected to strategy and business objectives or business objectives that are executed in a dull, boring way that nobody wants to pay attention to. It, it has to be and. It can't possibly be one thing or the other. Well, in actual fact, because when you read a lot of biographies or even autobiographies from famously creative people, composers, artists, 
musicians, all, all these people. Every part of the creative process is accumulating knowledge experience that becomes the food for the creative expression. All that happens is that we bring into that process of collection a commercial focus, which is a particular um, pro, uh, process or opportunity or problem that we're trying to solve. And that's the part. I, look, I have the same thing. I, I often have uh, marketers phoning me and saying, the agency has told me that we're killing their creativity. And I explain to them that there's a very distinct process up to the point of the creative germination. And that is the one bit of magic that happens. The part up to that is very much a process. And if you get it right, Every creative person I've ever spoken to says, you get that process right up to that point, it makes it so much richer and rewarding to generate ideas. Whereas, you know, the open brief, the um, lack of detail, all of that actually is why many creative people struggle to, in quotes, crack the brief. You have to get it right. I, I agree. And also... I would also agree that clients do kill creativity almost as often as agencies kill commerciality in the advertising process. And I think it's because in the main, in my experience, in a broad sweeping generalization, people haven't really stepped back and understood how advertising works. And yet, over the last 10 years, certainly, um, and you can probably go back 20, um, a bunch of very smart people have done an awful lot of work to try and understand at least the basic mechanics of how advertising works. Um, and it tells us there are two sides to it, that without it being emotional and playing to emotions and not features and benefits and kind of rational reasons to believe, and without finding some way of making the advertising famous or disruptive or talked about and attention grabbing, the advertising doesn't work because people don't watch it and don't respond to it. But we also know that they need to be able to comprehend it and process it and understanding it because only in understanding it do we remember it. Mm -hmm. And actually the single biggest determinant of did it work or did it not work or not was was it correctly branded or not, which breaks my heart, right? Yeah. Because it really ought to be the thing that we didn't need to think about anymore, that of course a damn advertisement is kind of heavily branded. But actually it's the thing that's missing most often is the branding bit. Mm. And you can even see in that, in emotion, fame, comprehension and branding, there's creativity and process. Yeah. It has to be incredibly emotive and talk to the kind of heartstrings of human beings. It has to be disruptive and engaging and get people thinking about and talking about it because it was something that they felt they hadn't seen before. But it needs to operate in a way that we can process and it needs to have the distinctive assets of the brand shoved right in the middle of it. Mm. That's process and creativity working hand in hand right there. And these are some of our best advertising practitioners that are telling us those are the things. Those are the big rules. The elements that Those have to are the big happen. rules. Yeah. Right? Now, when we get to the execution of a particular piece of work, right, the big rules probably not enough. But we're not applying the big rules, never mind trying to understand some of the, you know, 
smaller nuances. So no wonder clients kill creativity. Because they'll just come along and want more features and benefits and more talk about how the product works and like Loaded, yeah. make the logo bigger. Although it turns out they were right about make the logo bigger. <laughs> um, you know. And yeah. a bunch of creative people going, but we need to tell a big story and we need to kind of engage people and disrupt the market and both are right. Yeah. And the hard bit about advertising is it's got to be both. Yeah. It's got to be disruptive and familiar. And that is almost oxymoronic, but that is the modern challenge. There's another challenge, modern challenge as well, because in everything we've talked about, there's an element of going through the process to actually produce the outcome. And I'm not just talking about advertising and the creative process, but in everything you've talked about today, you know, from strategy, new product development, all these things takes time to actually do that process right, to really get your mind into the problem. And yet we increasingly live in a world which there's an expectation of being doing things faster and responding faster. You know, we, uh, we hear people talk about agile organisations and being able to respond in real time and things like that. How do you think people can come to terms with the fact that, you know, on one hand, Rome wasn't built in a day, but if you don't adapt, you die? I think it's another false dichotomy. That's, I think you just described the marketing job quite well. We have to take a long-term strategic view of how to build the number of customers, consumers, shoppers, users that shoppers on a regular basis. That is the long-term strategic job. Changing consumer behavior is hard and it's complicated and you know, building mental availability and physical availability, however you want to define that, that is a long-term strategic game that requires objectives, analysis and strategic choice. It can't be done on a quarterly reporting basis. Cannot be done that way. Should not be done that way because we need to make tough choices about how to allocate resources. Like the outcome of marketing is more consumers. It's what it actually, its actual function is a resource allocation mechanism, mm. a, a means of you know pointing people and money and attention. At these two things, not those two things. It's no more complicated than that, really. But Strategy in the absence of execution is, like, you know, intellectual wankery, yeah. right? We, you have to get off the PowerPoint page with the nice strategy pyramid and into the actual doing something. Um, otherwise, you're not going to deliver any business change whatsoever. And um, you were talking about your sailing analogy earlier. I've always described strategy like an expedition, mm. right? There needs to be a destination for the ex expedition. Um, we need a route that we've decided ahead of the expedition. Um, otherwise, there's every chance that things are going to go horribly wrong the minute we leave the front door. We need a bunch of resources and kind of equipment to help us on our way. And then we need to set off. And as we set off and we realize that the map is not the territory and the thing we thought was a small hump is actually a huge mountain covered in snow, then we may need to adjust the plan in flight a little bit. Um, well, even more, um, you know, the, to use your uh, analogy, your metaphor, um, the weather changes, yeah. you know, or the path is eroded or, or, you know, there are so many things that happen that the best laid plans, what do they say? When men make plans, God laughs, you know, and that's part of this, that the market is so dynamic. But the problem with that quote 
however cute it is, is that it suggests that planning is a meaningless, which it's, it's another one of these things, right? You need a strategy and a plan in order to allocate resources in the most efficient and effective way you possibly can. And you need the lack of hubris to be able to be in the middle of the plan and go, this is a terrible set of choices upon reflection. We need to do something slightly different. But without the plan, you wouldn't know that because nope. what would you have to you judge have against? You have no idea whether you do it against. And it doesn't change the destination, by the way. I've worked no. in enough businesses in my time to know the destination's always the damn destination. And going back to senior people right, with more power than you again, I'd like to sell quite a lot less, if that's all right, is very rarely a comfortable conversation to have. Mm. Um, but I've never had a problem going with, we thought this was a great plan to follow. It turns out we've learned halfway through that it's not working like we thought. We'd like to change tack. That approach has always been welcomed because it's a future-oriented, positive conversation about this doesn't seem to be working. Mm. Sorry about that. Good new plan. Yeah. Got an alternative. Got another way of getting to where we need to go to that you know, now we've learned a little bit more. This one should be better. Well, I think it's about setting a plan to achieve the objective, but also being open to take advantage along the way yeah. or to address the short, short-term obstacles that present themselves. I agree. It? And that's how agile should work. Um, similar to you know rapid prototyping, if we put it into an innovation context. The problem with both of those words, agile and rapid prototyping, um, is people have latched onto the semantic meaning of those words without any understanding of the richness that was built around agile project management methodology and rapid mm. prototyping as a discipline within design thinking for one way of kind of categorizing that word. And it's not like that. Rapid prototyping sits in a bigger process of consumer-led mm. innovation that's very framework and processy and structured and makes you solve specific problems in specific ways. It just uses rapid testing and learning to get to better solutions faster. Same with Agile. Same with Agile, right? It it exists in a very structured environment that allows you to kind of iterate very quickly, but but within a framework. We're talking about exactly the same concepts in It's interesting, and, and I'm glad you brought that up, because one of our biggest frustrations is the conversation that goes, we need to be more Agile. And when we ask what do they actually mean by that, it's usually just faster to respond. Now, you can only be faster to respond if you have a process in the first place that you then redesign to allow you to actually be fast. Faster to respond is not just shortening all the timelines of the existing process, because in most cases, it doesn't work. Um, But these are things I see Missing quite often, the skills of objective setting and objective laddering, of understanding the bigger goal and being able to set sub-goals that ladder back up mm-hmm. to the goal and being able to do that at one, two, potentially even three layers deep depending on the complexity of the organisation and the puzzle that you're trying to solve. And the skills of measurement and evaluation, of measuring the right things and of sp- knowing whether you are or are on track and whether it is time for an agile zig or whether our current comfortable zag is doing quite mm. all right, thank you very much. Um, both of those things are less prevalent than I think they ought to be. And 
again, we've been chatting about creativity, right? And the real mm. importance of that skill. But I see the mathematical, analytical skill missing more. Yeah. I see creativity in the, in the absence of analysis. Um, and I see that client side, that's, that's not an agency critique per se, that's a, that's a, I see that more often. And some of it's time, and some of it's people haven't had the privilege that I had of being taught how to construct a piece of strategy. Um, but I don't see them that often, and I hear my kind of peers and mentors saying the same thing the tactification of marketing, the absence of strategy, the lack of analysis, the um, lack of comprehension of what the metrics are actually measuring and just obsession on the metric rather than trying to work out what are the right measures. Um, my time at Diageo, one of the most important things I was taught was that evaluation happens at the conceiving of the activity. Mm. That as you decide what it is that you're going to do, you simultaneously need to decide how are you going to measure its effectiveness. And what I mostly see is us measuring things that we've put into market with whatever measures we've got available. Yeah, you, you, You'll never understand effectiveness that way because nothing's that simple. Mm. Like, hopefully with machine learning and AI, we might be able to do a whole bunch of retrofitting of analysis to things that we did and hoped we could measure them afterwards. But it's the discipline of thinking like that is what's missing. Even if we've now got technological tools that would allow us to be sloppy, we shouldn't be. When you think of something to do, you should write the plan for how you're going to measure it. What I like about that thought of at the time of conception, at the time of uh, you set the evaluation, is that it goes very much true to the experimental design, yeah. right? So that, that in science, scientific part of the, yeah, right? the scientific method, yeah. when you get to the point of, of setting the experiment, you've already set the criteria based on what it is, the hypothesis that you're testing, rather than, as you say, we're, we're absolutely flooded in all this... Uh, uh, I, I love the word market telemetry. You know, there's all this data that's just pouring out of the market all the time and trying to retrofit how can we actually use what exists as all this data to actually test what we're doing. But if we go back to our seemingly useful expeditionary analogy, right? Um, setting the evaluation plan is about really understanding the destination. Mm. And who the hell leaves the house without knowing where they're going? Right? <laughs> Well, <laughs> there's a time and a place for wandering. Yeah. yeah, I would suggest when we're investing millions of the organization's dollars, wandering is not what you want to tell your CEO. What are you doing at the moment? I'm off strategically wandering, boss. Can I just have a few million bucks to see what happens? See, it's interesting because what you know you said earlier that uh, if you've got a strategy and you've got a plan, and you get to the point where you go, we need to change direction. And you go and say, look, you know, this is not delivering as we thought and we want to change direction. Most organisations are up to that. I think it's because when you can articulate a well thought through considered plan, people feel more confident. I'm just wondering whether part of the issue of all this short termism that we keep hearing about, you know, CEOs of organisations 
being at the uh, whim of the investors because they want to see their quarterly reports of growth. They're not interested in the long-term vision. Is that perhaps the, you know, we've lost sight in business of the power of that long-term site. Because I remember um, reading about uh, Jeff Bezos at uh, Amazon. He, from day one, said to his investors, I'm not going to pay any um, dividends because we'll be reinvesting money back into this business for the next 20 years or more. Now, they came on board because they saw a long-term vision, a strategy to deliver it, and a plan on how he was going to do that, that they could then get on board. Is is strategy planning and the ability to articulate that part of what's required to overcome the short-termism tactical dominance that we're facing? Yes, and absolutely a chicken and egg, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm too busy executing tactics in order to spend the amount of time and effort it would require me to write a decent strategy. So I'm just going to keep throwing tactics at the wall is is the vicious down cycle. The ability to stop, take the time out, craft the plan, test the plan, set the plan, engage the organization in the plan, will build a virtuous cycle in due course. But I understand when you're in the thick of it, Telling your boss you're just going to take three months out to go away and have a think is, you know, it's a very difficult piece of organizational behavior to overcome. But the great organizations do. So the question is, do you want to be a great organization or not? Because the real powerhouses of the economy are doing this and finding the time to be strategic. And any of the ones that have got sucked into tactification are not doing very well. Um, and the smart, the share market definitely doesn't help, right? It puts very short time frames on things about something people care way too much about, which is quarterly wealth, right? <laughs> Personal wealth, right? Yeah. We care about that thing. Yeah. Um, but the smart investors get beyond the quarterly report and into the organizational strategy. They take a two year, five year, yeah. 10 year plan, okay. not a. And if you're investing for your. Super, everybody. Those are the people, the fund managers you want to be with, not the people who are following the whims of their quarterly yeah. report. Now, um, the, the reason I raised it is because, you know, we often don't see that type of vision. And when we do see it, everyone jumps on board. You know, and how many times have you sat in a presentation where Apple gets wheeled out, right? And how amazing Apple is. But, I mean, that's about a organization that had a leadership with a vision that was articulated and delivered, isn't it? Well, that's the other thing about strategic planning, right? As an organizational behavioral tool, it's incredibly powerful. The best strategic leaders, once they've written the strategy, repeat the damn thing ad nauseum every time you hear them speak. And that's exactly what they should be doing. Like, you know, execution by repetition of the strategic framework Mm. is a great leadership behavior. So whilst hopefully it gets you to better answers and better plans and better tactics because you've done better analysis as the foundation for your thinking, you also need it to get the herd of elephants that is your organization to all kind of go in the same direction. Mm. So, again, this tactification thing 
is not helping organizations in terms of getting alignment and alignment is probably more powerful than whether the answer was a, was right or wrong in the first place. Mm. Like a clear strategy executed brilliantly aligned across the organization is almost certainly more effective than a slightly better one that we haven't got the organization on board with. And unquestionably better than not having one at all. Now, in the context of what we've been discussing, what's your feeling about the rise that we've seen recently of, you know, like the chief customer officer, the chief growth officer? I mean, to me, all of these are the, in some ways, the task of a chief marketing officer. Why do you think there's been these sort of redefinitions? I suspect it's for the reasons we've been talking about. Marketing got over-tactified, if that's a word. Um, It will for now. Yeah. Uh, Certainly overly focused on the short term, less strategic. That seems to be a common thread across all the commentators and the studies. Um, And therefore, marketing became less important at a C-suite level. If it's just a tactics, that's not what the C-suite tends Mm. to talk about. Um, but it leaves a vacuum. It leaves a vacuum of it. So who in the organization is responsible for customers, consumers, users, subscribers, and who's going to go find us some more? And if marketing has abdicated that role strategically, then no surprise. We see a chief customer officer, a chief experience officer, a chief growth officer. Mm. Uh, there's no reason why that title needed to change beyond somehow we created a bad smell around the M word. Um, I'd kind of like us to go back and reclaim it, if I'm honest. There's Mm. nothing wrong with the word marketing as a description for the people who are in charge of customer growth. Well, one of the the big accounting firms uh, about six months ago invited me to a breakfast that was for CEOs. I think they... um, uh, mistook the size of uh, Trinity P3 because when I got there, it was actually 50 CEOs from private companies that were sort of 20 million to 100 million, which wasn't up, wasn't me. But it was an interesting conversation because it was about growth. It was about future growth. And, and so they had some speakers there talking about growth. And I was interested because the speakers were all talking about sales as the engine of growth. And all of the CEOs in the room were talking about sales as being their growth engine. And I raised the issue of the role of marketing in their individual organisations. And almost to a person, the response was, oh, the colouring in department, which is just such a poor view of marketing. Because for the CEO to say that, that means that that's the way they think about marketing. It's not what marketing is. It's their interpretation of marketing, isn't it? Yes. I mean, who knows what the cart and the horse is there. But these are private companies. We're not talking publicly listed companies. These are like family businesses and, and partnerships and things like that. And it just worries me that, you know, you said about the poisoning of the M-word or that, the, mm. you know, that it's gone a bit on the nose, it worries me that marketing as a business discipline, I can't quite call it a profession because almost anyone can be a marketer. 
But, but I think you touch on certainly something I believe, right? Um, that if I'm to become an accountant and the chief financial officer is like, you know, the pinnacle of the management accounting route, there are a bunch of things I need to learn, skills I need to demonstrate, um, certificates I need to acquire um, that are part and parcel of the symbols of my professionalism. Mm-hmm. Entirely possible, I would have thought, for you to learn all of those skills without getting the certificates and without going through the industry bodies, but that is not how that body of people work because symbols and you know certificates of authority are incredibly important in terms of how human beings mm-hmm. behave. We don't really have that as marketing. And yet, if we are conceptually, organizationally, the architects of growth within a within an organization, there is no less skill, capability, and therefore no less need for the symbols and certifications of competence and authority than the finance department should have. Well, to be a profession, to be considered a profession, there has to be a framework of qualification. So to be a lawyer, you need to have a law degree. To be an accountant, as you say, you have to have your accountancy qualification and certificates. Or you know, to be a doctor, you need to be have a medical uh, qualification. To be a marketer, I mean, we've got uh, that Gary Vandercheck uh, openly on the internet saying, don't go to university, don't study marketing, just get out there and do it. But that's the absolute like epicentre of tactics first strategy, mm. like never, right? And there's no question that he's wrong. There's no question that he's wrong. He builds up a very successful business out of being wrong, but no question that Gary Vee is not correct about that. Um, and put Gary V inside a Unilever, Procter & Gamble, Diageo, Coca-Cola, and watches kind of house of cards collapse, I would suggest, because those organizations have an understanding of the strategic role of marketing. Um, I don't know whether professional certification is a meaningful answer to the problem, but it is certainly part of a solution to rebuilding the credibility and perceived professionalism of marketers. Um, There's a reason why I run a marketing training business is because there's not a lot of competition out there for people who do marketing training. Mm. And it's a relatively open field. We, I should not be celebrating that. No. And look, I, I think it's interesting because we started this conversation, I asked you very deliberately, was this something that you came to because it was a vocation or was it something you learnt because of working in the marketing world and you said you were attracted to it? Some of the best marketers I've met are not people that are trained marketers, but they have a vocation for marketing. And because of that, their natural curiosity, their intellectual rigor, their ability for criti- you know, to embrace critical thinking has meant that even though they may have started out a lawyer or a salesperson or a scientist or something else, when they are attracted to marketing, they've also embraced and learnt the disciplines, right? And it's interesting because 
uh, even creativity. The, f the most creative people in the world are not people that just suddenly go, oh, I'm going to do this and be creative. They actually learn the disciplines of their creative field before they can master, to master that, before they actually go to the next level of being able to express that. And I'm wondering if because marketing has that dual analytical and creative element to being a great marketer, there's some part of it that you can teach the basics, but you can never actually teach the part that will make you a great marketer, that it's part of having a vocation. Yeah, I'd agree. Uh, not that I'm trying to draw parallels, right? But the same with being a doctor or a surgeon, right? I would be a terrible surgeon. I probably have the intellectual wherewithal to learn what I need to learn about surgery, but I would be a terrible executor of that profession. I'm not built correctly. And some people are and some people are not built correctly to be good strategic marketers. The interesting thing, though, um, is that sounds like an exclusive thought, right? There's a bunch of people who are quite good at marketing, then you lot who are not, right? Because, as a profession, we need to span the entire scope of rigorous, strategic, conceptual, big-picture creative thinking, all the way through to rapid execution, tactical test and learn, I suspect most aspects of the human psychology would fit in an organisation somewhere as long as we knew what we were great at and were allowed to just be great at what we're great at. Mm. There's a need for people who are bloody great at focusing on the here and now and executing in any marketing organisation. A bunch of me people, me like people, wandering around talking about strategy all the time, nothing ever gets done. <laughs> right? Too busy trying to think of the next kind of big growth idea and no one's actually focusing on whether we're actually shipping boxes out of the factory today. And uh, uh, there's, a, there's a broad spectrum within the marketing organisation. Of those uh, uh, personality, personality types, types that need to, to make things word, happen. But, yeah, yeah, but yeah. people have all strengths. Strengths, yeah. yeah. And the other problem, of course, is the executors, the people we're not talking about, right? But it's hard for an executor to be promoted through the marketing organisation. And yet, those people who are not like me are at least as important as me. Mm. Because the, the yin and the yang. We might need to think about career frameworks slightly differently. Mm. But that's a bigger thought for another time. John, thank you for your time. It's been terrific having it. This is a conversation that uh, has just had its own path, really. Yes, has really. But, Seems uh, to be the way with our conversations, Darren. <laughs> the, uh, just a, a final question. Of all the brands in the world, what's the one brand, if it came along and offered you the CMO role, you would have to say no because it's just too damaged. Mm -hmm.